Hi, this is Rob Reynolds, and you're listening to Education and Technology Futures, a weekly podcast that highlights interesting trends and connections in the worlds of education, technology, and culture. Chapter 1, The Value of Constraints in Fostering Innovation. The COVID-19 outbreak has me thinking quite a bit about constraint exercises these days. These are the exercises and processes we go through when we have to do something but are confronted with rigid constraints that force us to think and act differently than we might normally. These constraints, while frustrating, can also be a good way to stimulate creative thinking and innovation. They're the driving factor behind movies like Apollo 13 and The Martian and have helped engineers come up with amazing solutions to real-life needs, such as shrinking massive EKG machines into small battery-powered portable devices that can be carried on bicycles to reach rural areas in countries like India. Now, most of us experience constraints frequently in our personal and business lives. Unfortunately, we don't generally factor them into our planning, which is too bad, because thinking about and anticipating possible constraints can also help us discover new solutions and improved ways of doing things. Such was the case at the end of the last century when everyone began preparations for Y2K. IT departments at large and small organizations alike scrambled to update computers and networks to ensure that systems remained up and stable when internal dates turned to the new year 2000. And while some would argue that Y2K concerns were overblown, the rigid time constraint around the event led to an incredible amount of positive planning and process innovation across organizations. Fast forward to March 2020, and most companies and educational institutions are facing a growing number of possible constraints related to the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Will schools need to close? Will higher ed institutions be forced to deliver part of a semester entirely online to all their students? What will happen if students can't return to campus from spring break trips? Is it possible that the short-term shocks we're seeing at the present moment could extend to the next academic year? What will happen to our many educational conferences? These are definitely real and serious issues with both global and personal impacts. And thankfully, people like Brian Alexander have done a wonderful job providing information and asking questions in an effort to help people plan. At the same time, we should keep in mind that difficult events like the Great Recession or the spread of the COVID-19 virus also provide us with the constraints that are generally necessary to force aggressive innovation and creativity. They force us to deal with the present moment, but also provide lessons and new product and operational models that help us emerge from tragedy stronger and more effective than ever. Accordingly, I believe this current constraint exercise, the COVID-19 virus, will also lead to improved models for online learning, innovations in assessment and performance evaluation, and better solutions for remote collaborative work. Equally important, it will spur many schools and institutions to find new and improved ways to serve their students and their families. So, while it's incredibly difficult to confront these catastrophic events, it might help to keep in mind 
that they also tend to provide the necessary constraints for positive systemic change in the future. It's something to think about. Chapter 2, Education Disrupted by External Forces. If you've been part of an organization for any period of time, the following scenario will surely seem familiar. You're sitting in a meeting and somebody comes up with a new idea. You think it's a good idea, and so does almost everyone else. And just when you think the group has reached a consensus and is ready to move forward, someone says, didn't we try that before, about 15 years ago? The person then goes on to describe how the initiative they're referring to turned out to be an unmitigated disaster, with the direct implication, of course, that you would be crazy to ever try doing something like that again. Not discussed, of course, is the fact that the organization has evolved significantly in the past 15 years, or that the market and world have changed dramatically in the past 15 years, or that the people who were associated with said failed project aren't even with the organization anymore. But the doubt has been introduced, and more than likely, the group and organization will go back to the drawing board. The possibility of change and forward momentum have been averted. My experience has been that the larger the organization, the more often this scenario occurs. We talk about failures, those times we tried to do something new and it didn't turn out well, in order to protect tried and true products and processes the organization has worked hard to create and refine over the years. This is one of the reasons disrupting an organization from the inside is so difficult. People at the organization are so heavily invested in the status quo that innovation and change can only be threatening. Threatening to their jobs, threatening to the products and processes that are so familiar to them, and as a result, threatening to the organization itself. But if change and innovation from the inside are so difficult, you ask, what is the path forward? While there are a number of options, two are pretty easy to see currently. One good example came last week when GM announced its bold plan for electric vehicles. The company announced that it will launch at least 20 new electric vehicles by 2023. It's also rolling out new battery technology to lower cost and boost EV performance. Now, while this is certainly impressive for a traditional company like GM, it's definitely a fast follower move, a case where the company is innovating based on the work and innovation of another company in the same market, Tesla. Only after Tesla proved the EV market, only after Tesla established customer demand and product preferences, and only after Tesla's market share became larger than GM's, did the much older and more traditional company decide to move so boldly into the new space. In other words, GM is disrupting its traditional operations and technology by observing and building on the work of a competitor, and only because actual market survival is at stake. Another option for innovation from outside forces can be found in natural disasters, such as COVID-19 or the coronavirus. In the last week, the virus has forced a growing number of institutions to cancel face-to-face -face classes and move all instruction online. At the same time, many academic conferences are canceling in-person meetings and shifting to virtual solutions. This is forcing an acceleration in the adoption of lesser-used modalities and pushing them further into the mainstream. Now, we don't know how disruptive or how lasting the coronavirus will actually be. 
What we do know, however, is that it's already affecting disruptive innovation at many higher ed campuses and forcing education in general to consider new operational models. It's something to think about. Chapter 3. Things stay the same until they don't. People who know me well understand that I do have a certain attraction to new and offbeat things. In particular, I have a love for things that are in the early development and pre-adoption phase. Now, part of this is likely due to my suffering from a mild case of the shiny object syndrome, but it's also related to a deep interest in developing product and market trends. Take the new Citroen Ami, for example. This tiny electric vehicle seats two and has an eight horsepower motor at an amazing top speed of 27.9 miles per hour. Even better, it has a maximum range of only 43 miles. In France, anyone 14 or older can drive this car without a license. So how does this make sense? Well, to begin with, the AMI is intended to address the micro-mobility market currently dominated by electric scooters. Unlike those devices, however, the AMI is designed to operate on local streets and is much safer. It's also really cheap and can be purchased or rented by the week or minute. If a micro car for in-town travel doesn't interest you, what about a cup of coffee that isn't made from coffee beans? Atomo, a Seattle-based startup, has figured out a way to make coffee molecule by molecule, no bean necessary. And in taste tests, it's indistinguishable from a bean-brewed cup. For now, the company is starting with three kinds of cold brew, served from a tap in high-end locations for around $4 a cup. Both of these examples show how companies can look at evolving markets and focus on innovation that addresses shifting consumer interests. Citroen's car is a response to the growing micro-mobility market, while Atomo is developing a sustainable solution for the coffee industry. I think there are certainly good lessons for education here and questions we should be asking. What new trends are developing in traditional education markets that might be addressed by innovations in curriculum and credentials? What are some of the concerns in education, such as safety, health, accessibility, and affordability, that merit the development of new programs and delivery solutions? And what are small constituencies today that are likely to grow much larger in the coming years that would benefit from market-specific solutions? It's something to think about. Thank you.